Good morning. Good morning, beloved children of God. Last time I was up here, y'all threw stuff at me. So I'm just hoping I can get out of here with that happening today. I do have socks on from that day, though, whoever got me the... So I'll preach this week and next week, and I'm going to be preaching out of the book of Hebrews both times, which honestly is not a a place I spend most of my time, either in my own personal life or in my preaching life or my teaching life. I really, really like the Gospels. I love the stories of Jesus, and I avoid some of the more esoteric theological texts that exist, if I'm being honest. Uh, So I thought it would be a good challenge to wrestle with some of that. I just have to do it for two weeks instead of like four months like I did with Mark. So we're actually going to start with the first four verses of the book of Hebrews today. And they read, long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The word of God for the people of God. We just came out of a season in the United States of America uh, that is often called Halloween. On this day, something really strange happens. A bunch of adolescents and younger put on various costumes with the intention to scare you so much that you give them sugar to run away from your house. (laughs) People dress up as all kinds of things. The monsters we've envisioned as a human uh, race over the centuries, various superheroes, favorite sports figures, Long extinct animals. I saw about four or five very large Tyrannosaurus Rexes at the front door of my sister-in-law's house when I was handing out Reese's Pieces and things like that. And while some of the costumes are very close to what I might imagine, I could always tell it was a kid in a costume. There's a a phenomenon that's gone kind of mainstream in the last several years called cosplay, costume play. You see it at all kinds of different events. There is a world of people who make lots and lots of money dressing up like your favorite superheroes and internet figures and comics, uh, comic characters and all of those kinds of things. And some of them, especially when they get the lighting just right on Instagram and they get the exact right angle, um, look really, really close to the real thing. From what I understand, it's actually hard. I've never actually participated in this, though many of my students do. From what I understand, it's actually harder uh, to do that, uh, to, to do cosplay in person than online because then you have to perform the mannerisms of the character and all of this kind of thing. 
An imitation is never quite the same as whatever, quote unquote, the real thing is. I know many people uh, often see in their children or in a nephew or a niece uh, some reflection of someone they loved. There was in my grandparents' old house um, the high school photos of my, my father and my two aunts. And my aunt Janet in high school looked exactly like my sister Laura. I would swear they were the same person. They don't look anything alike now, but at that time in life, I would swear they were almost the same person. But if you looked close enough, you could tell it wasn't my sister Laura. Reflections are a part of human stories across uh, a history. And they show up in all kinds of weird ways. There is the ancient story of Narcissus. If you're familiar with this person, he was so beautiful, the most beautiful person who'd ever existed. Um, and that beauty led to a certain narcissism, which is where we get that word, where he was obsessed with himself. And one day, leaning over to drink from a pool, he noticed his reflection and became entranced with this, his reflection. And it killed him. Right? The, the, this idea that we would pay too much attention to ourselves and our reflections might actually be deadly. Um, there is the story, uh, well, before I do that, there's the, the phenomenon in kind of contemporary American culture of the funhouse. Right? You go in and there's mirrors that will make you look wider or skinnier or taller or all kinds of disfigured ways. Um, and those reflections, while they're recognizably us in some way, they're also not us. The philosopher um, Plato once told this story. It's often called the allegory of the cave. Many of us have probably heard some version of this. Plato basically makes this argument. Our world is similar to a world in which there are a bunch of humans who are chained in a cave and they can only look in one direction. And behind them is this light that casts shadows on the wall on which they can stare. And that's all that they can see. And so they are convinced that the world is a world of shadows. It's not 3D. It's these kind of vague figures that move across a wall. And that for Plato, if you actually participate in philosophy, you can become like the person who would break free of the chains and turn around and see the sun casting the shadows and you would see the world that was the actual people pushing the carts and riding the horses that were the shadows that you saw on the wall. And if you took the time to meditate and participate in philosophy, you would see the world as it is. And so this world that we occupy as humans is the world of the shadows. It's not real. Uh, we're just seeing like the people in the cave saw. And if we would, for him, if we would practice philosophy, we would then be able to see the real world. We live in a world where we're convinced, actually, that it is the images and the reflections that are the most real. Or at least we act that way on social media sometimes. Every month, you'll see a new article that will come out that will discuss the ways people only put their happiest moments or we all have FOMO, fear of missing out because people only put their vacations and their events that they attend. And we think that everyone's life is so much more exciting than it really is. 
All of this to say that we live in contexts across time where we might be skeptical of the image. We might be skeptical of reflection. What's in the mirror, yeah, it's kind of real, but it's not what's really real. It's not what gives us the best sense of what is true in the world. And along comes the writer of Hebrews, and he tells us that Jesus was the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. The writer of Hebrews makes this argument, that the reflection of the image of God that we see in Christ is clearer than anything we had previously seen. Any words that had come from the prophets that were spoken to our ancestors, any of the stories that come through the law, through the stories of Moses, that actually in this one who has appeared in the last days, who is the reflection of the glory of God, is the exact imprint. That word that's translated reflection can also be translated something like sunbeam or radiance of the sun. In other words, you might read this as Jesus is the sunbeam of God's glory, the light that shines forth into the darkness of the world, the one that illuminates what is true, the one that actually makes the world real in Plato's cave, the one that gets the angles just right for you to take the perfect selfie so the jawline is just perfect. The one who illuminates all that is real and that is true. The writer of the book of Hebrews makes the claim that Jesus, the Son of God, is the clearest expression of the reality of God and God's love and God's salvation and God's grace and God's justice than we have ever witnessed as human beings. And he is not the only one who has made that claim. In the book of Colossians chapter 4, you can go there if you would like, but don't feel the need to. I will read it to you. Um, Colossians chapter 4 and verse 15, Paul says this. Let me make sure I wrote that down right. Oh, I'm in the wrong book. That's why. <laughs> I was like, that don't seem right. Colossians chapter 4. Oh, that's wrong too. I wrote down the wrong thing. Let's see if I can find it real quick in the real thing. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, not 4. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. You go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Let's hope I wrote that down right. I don't think I actually did. Oh, I did. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So in Colossians, we are told Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In 2 Corinthians, we are told Jesus 
is the light of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And in Hebrews, we are told that Jesus is the light of the glory of God, who is the reflection and the exact imprint of the one that we call God. There is something about Jesus as light and Jesus as image and Jesus as reflection that is central to the way the first generations of Christians understood who and what Jesus was. This claim is bold. This claim is transformational. Christians were not the first people to say something like, there are gods who show up on earth, right? They live in this Greek Roman context with stories of Zeus, Zeus, and Hercules, and a whole bunch of other people who show up in the world and interact with humans. But Christians are the first to make the claim that that image is the truest, the one who would come and be divine among us is the truest image of God that we can know. Those who believe the stories of Zeus were, the, were like Plato, who said what we see can never be the truest thing. There is something that exists beyond human comprehension. And in step the early Christians and they say the exact opposite. They say the one who took on flesh is the clearest image we can see. It's the light that pierces the darkness. It is the exact imprint of the one we call God. Clearer even than the words of the prophets. We also read in Hebrews that this one who reflects God into the world in such a way that that light of God, the radiance of God's glory is the language that is used, pierces into the darkness of the world. That one sustains everything by his word. Similarly, in Colossians chapter 1, not chapter 4, chapter 1, we are told, right, he is the image, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. There is something about this one who breaks into our world as the light of God's glory reflecting the image for all of us to see. There's something about that light that exposes, that makes clear, that demonstrates truth, that holds everything together. That makes it all make sense. Like Chris said earlier, as humans, we can't always make sense. We were talking before about um, the most recent mass shootings, which is connected to a place that we're connected to. And we know people who've been to the places where that shooting happened, who, know, who are connected to people who are connected to people who were killed there. It's, there's no way to make sense of senseless acts of violence, right? By definition, we can't wrap our heads around it. But there's something about the one who is the light, who breaks into the world, who holds it all together. Otherwise, it would be chaos. One of the things that I think 
the writer of Hebrews and Paul and Colossians and Corinthians tries to make clear for us, tries to help us to see is that when we want to see God in the midst of chaos, in the midst of darkness, in the midst of confusion, we have a clear place to look. In generations past, they would listen to the words of the prophets or the stories of Moses, or they would go to synagogue and they would participate in their sacrifices, in their giving of offerings. And the writer of Hebrews invites us to look to Christ. That that is the place that we see God most clear. That is the place where we can come with our questions and find answers. God's light, we are told, shines into the world through the reflection of Christ. And it's that image and that light of God that holds everything together. The writer of Hebrews and the writer of Colossians tell us that in just a little bit different language. And so in a world that sometimes feels out of control, over the course of a life in which we experience loss and despair and disappointment, we are told this. If you want to see God, look to Christ. If you want to see what God is doing in the darkness, look to Christ, because it will be the light that breaks through. If you want to see God when things seem to be falling apart, look to Christ, who holds it all together. This one who is the light the reflection of the image of God, who through his words and his varying being holds it all together. This is a radical claim about the nature of the universe and about how we have access to the divine. And so we look to the life of Christ when we have questions and we can find God. You look to the stories of Jesus when he washes the feet of disciples who even would kill him, or he touches the unclean, or he speaks with women who have been shunned in public, or he dines at the homes of tax collectors and Pharisees and Zacchaeus. We look to those stories and we understand that if we want to see, if we want to see God, we look in the example of Christ and we, in the words of Paul in our dwelling passage, imitates him as he imitates Christ. If we want to know how God would interact with those we would call enemies, we look to the life of Christ and we see how Christ interacted with those who were ethnically or religiously different, with those who have been shunned by those with religious power, with those even who had different politics. He had zealots and tax collectors in his crew altogether. Even those who would kill him. Jesus dines at the tables of Pharisees. He breaks bread and offers the first communion to Judas. He calls us to love our enemies and do good to those who would hurt us. And we look to that example and see the one 
who would die for all of the world to be saved. In our dwelling passage, we recognize that there are some who would choose to be enemies. And in the life of Christ, we look and see that Christ died even for them. If we want to know how God engages in a world of conflict, of discord, of division, even of people who would recognize themselves as enemies, we look to the example of Christ. We look to the one who would break, who would step into a temple and turn over tables because the poor are being exploited and call out those who give out of their wealth in flashy ways so that people would look to them and give them honor. And he says, no, no, no. It's the woman who only has two coins who gives it all, who is the one who is the greatest. We look to the one who would engage across difference with Samaritans and Jews and Syrophoenician women and Roman centurions and it is the ones who would come to God and say, God, I'm not worthy, but heal my loved one. Speak a word into my life. We see in the example of Christ, one who loves, who loves justice who spends his time with the least and the lowliest, who himself becomes um, unclean for the purpose of bringing healing, when he touches the leper, when he is touched by the woman who has been bleeding for years, when he crosses across the boundaries that have been created by society. There are times Jesus literally makes himself unable to enter into the house of God for the purpose of the kingdom. And when we look to the life of Christ, we see Christ stand even in solidarity with us and the experience of death. My prayer is that no one in this room has to experience the kind of death that Christ experienced. But we know there are humans who will. And we know none of us will escape death and there's nothing pretty about any way of going out. And we are told through the one who is the exact, reputa- rec- um, the exact representation of God. One who would hang on a tree and share in death with us. There is perhaps nothing more human that Christ ever did than to face death in the face, knowing every one of us would do the same, will do the same. Jesus goes into a tomb, and his heart's not beating, and his lungs aren't filling with air, and blood is not flowing. Imagine the writer of Hebrews saying, that lifeless body is the exact representation of the one we call God. The exact representation. The sunbeam of the radiance and glory of God breaking into the world is buried in a tomb. But that, of course, we know is not the end of the story of Christ. We know that three days later... Christ is resurrected into some kind of glorified body that walks through walls and also eats fish. I don't know how to explain it. I'm not the scientist of the resurrection. But we know 
that Christ was resurrected. And that that's part of the image and reflection of God that we share and participate in. That part of what we see when we look to the life of Christ is we see that resurrection is coming for ourselves, for others. And we don't look, this is what's so radical about this claim. We don't look to the life of Christ to see that Christ was a good person, the fulfillment of the prophets, or anything like that. Though all of that is true, and we should look for those things. But what the writer of Hebrews tells us is what we see when we look there is the truest picture of God. The exact representation of who God is. The prophets gave us shadows on walls. There's something true to them. We can learn much from the words of the prophets. But if we think what we see in the prophets or we see in Moses or we see in Joshua or we see in the judges is the clearest expression of God, we miss something. It's we look to the image of Christ, the life of the one who is that reflection, who is the radiance, is literally the sunbeam that breaks into and creates the worlds that we can see. That is the clearest image of God that we can have. So if you've been taught some image of God that suggests to you that Jesus is special or different, or that there's something radically different between the one we call Christ and the one we call Yahweh. I'm here to tell you, if you think there's something radically different between the two, forget the former and lean toward the latter. we got to make sense of how the scriptures work together. I'm not saying we just throw it all out. But what I'm saying is if you have question, if you have confusion, if you have a lack of clarity, if you feel a lack of love, look to the stories of Christ. And know we have no clearer image. We have no better way to know who God is, how God acts, and how God intervenes in our world and in our lives than the way that Christ interacted in the world he was a part of, intervened in the lives of the people who crossed his path. That is who God is, that is how God acts, and that is who God will be in your life and in our world and in this church. It doesn't always make sense to us because we don't hold it all together. But the one who is the light and the reflection does. My invitation to you today is to look to those stories. Look to the words of the one who is the exact representation, who is the sunbeam of God that holds all of this together. Look to that one and know this. God loves you even when you're at your lowest. God wants justice for every single person. God is willing to get unclean for you to be healed. God is the one who is willing to walk alongside you even to death on a cross. All as the actions of the God of the universe. Not some kind of sort of divinity that's kind of like God but not quite. But in the fullness of all that God is, God is the one who breaks bread and drinks wine 
and goes to the grave with you and the ones you love and those you hate and call enemies. And that there is something about knowing a God like that that clears up the darkness, clears up the confusion, makes things fit together when everything might seem like they're falling apart. It's when we keep our eyes on that one, that image, that reflection, that is the light of the radiance of the glory of God that breaks into our world. It's hard to see that sometimes. It's hard to believe that sometimes. But what the writer of Hebrews invites us to do is to know that Jesus of Nazareth, that one who was born in a stable, that one who was tried to be killed as a child, that one who wandered the streets of Israel and Palestine and ended up dying on a cross killed by the state of the Roman Empire, that one, if we look just right, is actually the clearest expression, the clearest picture of God that we could ever see. This would confuse Plato. This would confuse Narcissus. This would confuse almost any person whose Instagram is full of nothing but selfies. But it would be the truth. It would be the reality of the world we've inherited that the God that we worship, the one we claim will save us in the end, is the one with a towel around his waist, with bread and wine on a table with his enemies, bent down, washing feet. Who is the God who holds it all together? It's the God who is a servant to the ones who he loves, the ones who would betray him, in preparation to die in solidarity with all of humanity. That's God. Christ is God. In that claim, we make radical claims about who it is we worship and what that God is like. So my invitation to you for this week is to look for the light. Where's the light breaking into the world? What stories are you falling back on that we know about the life of Christ that reveal to you who God is and what that means for who we are to be? So as you leave this place and you go into the world that gets dark at 5 o'clock, look for the light and you might see God.